0: in order to give Aubrey a little more vacation time and not have to prepare for preaching when he returned home this week or last week he asked me to preach so for those of you who are visiting I'll say two things number one we're working through the book of first Corinthians which we will be doing today in the, in the uh, verses that were just read to us and second this is the B team and I apologize <laughs> <laughs> Our passage today says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly, for there is jealousy and quarreling among you. For you're not acting, you're acting like mere men. Some of you are saying, I follow Paul, and some are saying, I follow. Apollos Mm -hmm. this church was rife with divisions and factions and uh, disagreements and I want to expand on that a little bit to help us understand what that means if you go back to verse 10 of chapter 1 Paul introduces this whole problem he says some of you say I follow Paul some say I follow Cephas some say I follow Apollos some say I follow Jesus But you're you're quarreling and struggling and having divisions among you. And actually, the next three and a half chapters, all the way through chapter 4, is basically addressing this issue. Now, Paul kind of has a style of writing. As he starts on a theme, he gets into a point, and then all of a sudden, off he goes on a word and... And you say, Whoa, wh- wh- where did he where is he going with all this? And then he eventually gets back to the subject again. But during this whole section, he's talking about the problems of division, and I want to expand on that a little bit to say, kind of the who, the, the what, and the and the who, of these divisions. What was the extent of these divisions? In uh, other words, signs of an unhealthy church. And then secondly, I wanted to. Look under the surface of these verses that we're looking at here today and ask the question, why, why, why did this happen? Why do they have these special struggles in this church? And then as a part of that is, okay, what lessons can we learn about a marks and pointers to a healthy church? If you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, I think a careful reading indicates that there are at least four factions at work, four divisions, four groups. The first I would call the grace, freedom, and libertarian faction. Uh, you'll see that in, uh, when Paul is discussing the issue of, of meat offered to idols, he quotes them, back to themselves and says, everything is permissible to me. So there was a group there that said, anything goes. It's okay to eat meat offered to idols. Or when he was discussing an immoral situation in the church where a man was apparently having a, a, an improper relationship with probably his mother-in-law. He said, some of you in approaching this issue are boasting about it. It's like you, we have freedom in Christ. So there was this group that emphasized our freedom, our liberty, and minimized uh, obedience. And perhaps they were identifying with Paul. Paul emphasized, he had a radical conversion from the Jewish faith uh, moving toward God and toward freedom and the, the power that's in Christ. And moving away from the legalism that was in the, the Jewish faith, he was a Pharisee, and he, he, he really walked away from that. And so he emphasized the, the, uh, the freedom that's in Christ. And so they said, okay, I'm, I follow Paul in this. He's the man that uh, believes in freedom, in uh, freedom of the believer. The second group was a group that I would call the Legalistic, Ascetic, or Works, Works faction. They went on the opposite side. So, for example, in the, on the issue of meat offered to idols, what did they say? Oh, you, you shouldn't do that. You've got to be careful. That's, we, we don't want to go there. Or in, uh, when, when Paul was talking about marriage and sexual relations uh, in, the, in chapters uh, 6 and 7, he quoted a group who said, It is better that a man not touch a woman. He's quoting them. Now, what this really was saying was, it's better that a man not have sexual relationships with a woman. So they were on the other side, ascetics pushing down the desires of the flesh and trying to dismiss them and say that the, the true Christian life was to uh, deny yourself, to to produce works, to be like that super obedient Christian that uh, certainly would. Not want to go outside the boundaries of, uh, of the kind of things that maybe many Jewish folks uh, would have felt was important. And so perhaps this group was identified with Peter. Peter struggled as a Christian with understanding what it meant to be free in Christ. Free from the legal st- structures of the Jewish faith. For example... When Paul is writing in the book of Galatians, which is an earlier book than this, he says, I was preaching... Well, let's just look and see what he says. <clears throat> Galatians uh, chapter 2 verse, uh, verse 3, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on us the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. And we did not give in to them for a moment. But he says Peter came and Peter kind of gave in to this group and said, no, I think I'll kind of go along with them. And he pulled himself away from the Gentiles and he says, I confronted Peter directly. Now, I'm not going to draw a wedge between Peter and Paul here. They were on the same page. But I think what was happening in this church in Corinth with young Christians was one group was picking up one emphasis from one church leader and another group was picking up a a little different emphasis from another and magnifying the difference. So we had this group that said works and legalism is, is a key to being a faithful Christian. A third group... I would call the Charismatic Gifts faction. Paul devoted a whole chapter later in the book on this whole divisive issue of the Charismatic Gifts, particularly speaking in tongues. There were some who thought this was really the gift, and they were driving a wedge between them and others who maybe didn't feel that that was quite so important. And again, this may be a group identified with Paul. Paul. As Paul was talking about the spiritual gifts and talking about speaking in tongues within the church, he, his basic theme was this needs to be under control and be appropriate. But he says, "I speak in tongues more than any of you do," so they could have been picking up on Paul and making this an emphasis from his ministry. And then there's another group, the fourth group I would identify in the in this church. That's called I would call the the knowledge and wisdom faction. Uh, it's, it's... They emphasized the intellect, the, the theology. Uh, they were emphasizing the, the, the Greek value of uh, oratory and knowledge and wisdom. And I suspect... That indeed, this group was identifying themselves with Apollos. Now, what do we know about Apollos in the Scripture? In in Acts eighteen, we hear that he was preaching uh, and powerfully refuting and def- uh, the the Jewish uh, counter argument against Christ and 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 uh, defending the faith in a very powerful and intellectual way. And then Priscilla and Aquila comes along, and they said, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? He says, who's he? What's that? And he then be, was filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I see P- Apollos as is, is the kind of person who was converted as an intellectual. It was an intellectual conversion. He, he was schooled in the finest schools of the world in his day, which was in Alexandria. And he learned oratory. He he was urbane and sophisticated, and uh, uh, eloquent. knew how to debate, and he had an intellectual conversion. I don't want to minimize that. I'm sure the Spirit of God was working in his heart. But I could see some people in Corinth picking up on Ale- on uh, on Apollos and saying, "That's that's my kind of Christianity, the intellectual part." So Paul is dealing with these divisions, he sees these divisions in the church and uh, he's struggling with, I can see him kind of struggling as he writes this book how do I address these issues, what would God say to these people in this church, in fact I think we can even see it in his introduction to uh, to the the high point of this book which is chapter 13 the love chapter and he says this if I speak in tongues of men and angels but do not have love I'm just a noisy gong focusing on that charismatic gifts group if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love I'm nothing Hey, you guys that think that's the intellect, that's the key thing, that's your knowledge and understanding and all your wonderful wisdom? No. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have no, not love, I gain nothing. Those of you who think it's dig down deep and and follow in obedience and, and deny yourself, yes, there's a truth to that. But if that's all there is and there's no love then you're missing the boat. This, the slight differences in emphasis and gifting and ministry that these men had dumped into the Greek philosophy of Epicureanism and Sto- Stoicism and the emphasis on eloquence and knowledge. Man, it was like hitting a tinderbox. And all this, and this church was just divided in the midst of all this. So I want to now switch over to what Paul would say to us about the root causes of these divisions and pointers to a healthy church. The first thing I would say from our passage is they had a shallow experience of discipleship. Look at verses... Uh, One through three. I could not address you as spiritual. But as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk not solid food. For you were not ready for it. Indeed you're still not ready. When you're. Dividing and arguing with each other. On these issues. That shows that you're still spiritually immature. Now we know from chapter two. Paul is very clear that when we become a believer and uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the Spirit. We know from Ephesians that before that happens, we are dead spiritually. There's no life there. There's no signal going on between us and God. What Paul is saying is in this, these verses is, You have the spirit, but you also still have that old nature still in you. Uh, In these verses, it's called... If you look at the King James Version, it's called the flesh. That's kind of what I grew up on in terms of understanding this passage. You have the the spiritual nature that is now inborn in you to give you a possibility of growing into a, a relationship with God but you also, we also still have this inborn human base nature. And there's a struggle that goes on. And he's saying, you Christians at Corinth, you haven't made progress from taking your cues from this fleshly nature to begin to listen to the Spirit. Uh, if you bear with me, I'd like to read a couple of a page from a book called Contemporary Christianity by John Stott. Rest in peace. John Stott passed away about three weeks ago. One of the greatest men in evangelicalism the world has ever known. I'd say of, of any person that's had an impact on my life, he would certainly be maybe my greatest hero as a thinker and a Christian he even there was even a a tribute to him in the uh, the 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 New York Times Uh, too bad in our culture today in our country it's not John Stott that defines evangelicalism or or traditional fundamentalism its its Jerry Falwell's and, and those kind of things so John Sott says first in his commentary in 1 Thessalonians, The new birth means nothing if it does not pull us out of our fallen introversion and redirect us toward God, Christ, and our fellow human beings. That's what these Christians at Corinth were not making progress on. Paul draws a contrast between the flesh and the spirit, between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Now, by flesh, he means neither the body. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, it, Paul says, Don't you know that the body is the, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? No, the, the flesh that he's talking about is uh, our f- inherited, fallen, twisted nature with its bias toward evil, its corrupt desires, and its selfish demands. It is well said that if we erase the last letter of the word flesh and then reverse the letters, that gives us the real meaning of what flesh means in the scriptures. How's that? Can I figure that? Self. Here are the two protagonists in the struggle which Paul describes. On the one hand is the flesh, our self-centered fallen nature, and then the other the spirit, the personal indwelling spirit of God. Paul says three things about this. First, the desires of the flesh and the spirit are active desires. It's a struggle. It's a battle. It never ends. Some of you are younger than I am. Let me tell you, it never ends. Now, remember those uh, those works, ascetic Christians. They would say, "Well, no, the battle is over. That's now dead. Push it out a- away. It's gone." No, it's still alive and we still struggle not to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Second, the desires of the flesh and of the spirit are opposite desires. A fierce antagonism exists between them. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. Uh those Christians who were libertarian anything goes hey they were kind of given in not fighting this fight that needs to go on in our lives between between as Paul says in in Galatians between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit so Paul's saying Christians one reason you're experiencing these problems and divisions and struggles in your church is that you have a very shallow view and experience of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. You're not entering that struggle. You're not uh, making progress. Now, that progress, from my experience, for those uh, of us would want to seek to become stronger and more mature Christians, it's like two steps forward and a step back. It's like three forward and two back. It's like one forward and two back. But as we seek to follow the Spirit, Paul says we can begin to grow in the knowledge of the Scripture. So a healthy church is a church with healthy Christians that are growing. How do we grow? Uh, There was this old farmer, had an old dog, Two dogs. And they were about equally matched, and they fought all the time. So one time, someone asked him, "said Well, wh- which one wins?" The old guy thought a while. Says, "Well, I guess it's the one I feeds the most." <coughs> which one are we feeding the most? The works of the flesh, or walking in the Spirit? And what we read, what we think about, what we do, the, how we spend our time. Do we go to church? Do we worship? Are we in small groups? Do we study the scriptures? Do we watch TV? What is it we do? What is it we do? A healthy church has healthy Christians who are growing in Christ. A healthy church helps all of us to grow and not just be stagnant in the same place as as Paul was saying these Christians were. The second... Underlying cause, I think, that Paul is identifying is he says, You, you guys, you have an, a superficial understanding of, of who God is. Look at our passage. He says, What is Apollos in verse 5? And what is Paul? They're only servants. Through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned his task. I planted the seed and Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Somehow, these Corinthian Christians lost sight of God. And what God was doing in their church and in their lives. And they started focusing on what? On my gifts. I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got, I speak in tongues. I have healing gifts. I do this. That's what's important. And they were not looking through to who the source of these gifts and who God is. The charismatic group glorified in their special gifts. They failed to see God behind these gifts. They did not comprehend the vastness and richness of his work in the church and the world. They boxed God in by their limited thinking and experience of what was important in their worship of God. The only way I feel good about worship is to do it this way. No, I want to do it this way. I like this preacher. No, I like this preacher. I like this kind of music. I'm not so sure about Ernie and how he does music. All these things that we, you know, you hear about what's, what I don't like about a church or what's wrong with a church. What are these? Paul, Paul talks later on about how you worship together. But what's the point? The point is to introduce us to who God is and to understand the God of power behind all these gifts. Uh, about a dozen years ago, maybe ten years ago, my wife and I uh, went back as middle-aged folks to the Urbana Missionary com- Convention that's sponsored by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Now, I had been on staff for any number of years in my previous life and had been to quite a few Urbanas. And uh, <laughs> the last evening of Urbana is always New Year's Eve and there's a communion service. Now, the way they did communion service with all this horrible, loud uh, rock music and stuff and and then the guy, very casually, you know, just like bottoms up sort of thing for <laughs> communion, I, I was appalled and and i I shared that <laughs> with several people <laughs> and including the next day to the President, Dr. Uh, Steve Hainer, the president of university he 's now at Columbia Seminary as a uh, chair of evangelism and missions, and, and I, I was spouting off a little bit about how I felt about all this. And he, I think, kind of tended to agree a little bit, like, you know, we, we need to do things a little better. But then he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, you know, I don't think it's up to us. Oh, and here's, here's what I said. I got I to preface it. I said, I don't think God was honored by the way this communion service was done last night. And he says, you know, I don't think it's... I think we need to leave it up to God to determine what honors him. Oops. (laughs) We can get too hung up on the way things are done that maybe just doesn't exactly please us because we're not focusing on the big picture of who God is. Now, in this superficial understanding of God, there was also this knowledge and wisdom group. Any of you been in a church where it it was pretty obvious there was a certain group of Christians in there, maybe some of the leaders, who had it all figured out? They had it all figured out. They knew what was true, they knew what was not true. So often what I see in that is that they've gained a superficial view of God and think that all their wonderful categories of theology and and all that can really capture who God is. And they know who God is. They got him all figured out. I think that was going on in this church. A group of people... Felt like they knew who God was, what he was like, had wrapped their arms around that, and had God put in a box. I don't think there's anything that can be more destructive than that in the church. And what I would say is, I would call us to have what I would call a humble theology. Now, I don't mean by that a weak theology that's mamby-pamby and wishy-washy and so on, but one that centers on the truth of the gospel, the essentials of the Christian faith, and is charitable and somewhat flexible on the non-essentials. And I think we have an example of that in Paul. Paul says in, uh, in chapter 15, later on in the book, he says this. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul knew what he believed and would not compromise on the basics of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ, the crucifixion, life, death, resurrection, salvation, the majesty and power of God. But he also says in a chapter or two before that, in chapter 13, I think it is. He says in verse, uh, verse 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish ways. Now we see in a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see him face to face. He, Paul, knew he didn't know everything. We only can know a little bit of God. What did Saint Augustine he said? He said, if you can comprehend it, it's not God. <laughs> so this these divisions were caused to a great extent by people who thought they knew about God but they didn't really understand the true powerful magi- majestic multifaceted God with many gifts and and a ministry for the entire world if you look in chapter 2 as we've been going through this study do you notice that juxtaposition between wisdom and knowledge from the human point of view and the cross When we stand before the cross our differences melt away our pretensions leave us and our smugness is destroyed. These Christians I think were smug in their view of gifts in their view of their ministry in their view of who God is and how they thought they understood him. No. In 1940 C.S. Lewis wrote a book called the Problem, of Ape, the Problem of Pain. Great book for academic study, discussions about theoretically about pain and suffering and how God uses that and all that. And and then 21 years later, a, a guy by the name of uh F N. W. Clerk wrote a little book called a a grief observed in which he says as he reflected on the dying of his wife with cancer that he he fought out at God and couldn't get to God he never lost his faith but he struggled it was a terrible mystery to him it was a big struggle And he talked about how that shallow book, The Problem of Pain, was just a cerebral exercise in an understanding of pain and not the visceral, deep level of struggle with the real pain. Now, the rest of the story, N.W. Clerk. who is he? It was a pseudonym for C.S. Lewis. 21 years later, he says now i think i understand more about god through suffering it's as we stand before the cross that we can understand who god is and it's it's a god that enters into our own suffering our own loss we we come here to confess our sins to Open ourselves up before this Jesus Christ who died on the cross, saying, We are needy people, and we need to come into your presence and know you and receive your grace and blessing in our lives. We can't figure you out, God. Uh, I would make a one mild suggestion for our church. When we go through we do our confession. How about when we kneel? We kneel toward the cross. Not turn in our chairs and look back that way. Just a little suggestion. The third reason for their struggles and divisions, I think, is a failure of leadership. In our passage... um, It says, "You guys were not looking at us. You were not looking. You were looking at us, Paul, Apollos, and me, Paul, and not somehow or other seeing God through us. Who are we? We are servants of God. There's nothing that can, in addition to, know-it-all attitude, theologically, and a." a lack of humility in our theology that will destroy a church quicker than poor leadership. You know, th- this book was was written to very specific situation. It wasn't a very, it wasn't a general theological book for a bunch of Christians out there. It was, and, and, and so as Paul dealt with all these situations, what what's interesting to me is, yeah, I don't see any reference to leadership in the church. I'm not sure exactly what to make of that, but there were leaders. If there are factions, there are leaders. <laughs> you know, a few of us can sit around, have an opinion, go home, express it to our spouse, but, but that's not a faction. A faction was a group of people get together, say, yeah, right, I agree with that. Yeah. So there were leaders here. These leaders failed to understand what it meant to be a servant of God in ministry to others. As we think about our church, leadership is so important. i 've seen churches really hindered when wrong, or the wrong leaders got were put in the position immature christians. i 've seen Christians almost destroyed by being put into positions of leadership too quickly. So we have a process that we want to make sure that we are being wise in our choice of leaders for our church be praying about that as, as we would expand the leadership at our church we have a great pastor I think he's wise beyond his years uh, I'm very grateful for that I'm grateful for the leadership we have and I pray that God will raise up more more preachers George Herbert was a British poet in the early 1600s he wrote a number of poems Uh, And it sought to bridge the gap between heaven and earth, between the believer and Christ. His poem, Windows, explores the role of preaching in the life of the church. With the opening line, Lord, how may man preach thy eternal word? In another poem called Elixir, he has this to say about the role of the word and the preacher. On man that looks on glass... On it may stay his eye, or if he pleaseth, through it pass, and then the heaven spy. When you listen to Aubrey, to me, whoever's preaching, are you looking at the person like the Corinthians were, Paul or Apollos? Or are you looking through that glass to the God behind that's. Speaking to you and saying, here's what is my word for you today that can help you be a better disciple. As we continue to study this important letter, let's eagerly look through the glass of preaching to the one behind the preaching to God himself. Let's pray.